Good morning. Welcome to Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. And we're here as we are every Saturday at 9 Pacific to talk with you about the markets and the economy and hopefully give you some good insights into what's been going on in all those areas. And we're going to talk today. We'll go over uh, some of what's been going on in the market, uh, some of the economic reports. I want to spend some time on uh, inflation stuff. Um as we'll get into that a little later, but just uh, by way of forewarning, not to suggest it's coming and you got to be digging big holes to hide out. No, it's just the things, the markets are changing, the economies are changing, you just got to be ready. So let's see. Yesterday, we had, what we had, four days up and one day down, and that down day was down seven points. The market was pretty sideways all week, actually. Although it was up net uh, by the time the smoke all cleared, and we had set uh, during the week four new multiple highs, uh, all four major market indicators, Dow, S&P, NASDAQ, and the Russell 2000, all have set new all-time highs, and the S&P just did it again yesterday. So uh, yesterday, the Dow did close at 31,458. That was up a whole 27 points. The S&P moved up to 3934. NASDAQ higher at 14095 The Russell 2000 at 2283 Gold at 1822 an ounce. Silver at 2726 Crude up at 5947 a barrel. Ten-year continuing to rally. It was uh, at 120 And the soft white wheat up to 726 a bushel. Now, this coming week uh, will be closed Monday for President's Day, and uh, we will get some more earnings news this week. We'll also get retail sales and industrial production. Um, and then on Wednesday, Mr. Powell will be uh, releasing the minutes from uh, the last Federal Reserve meeting. Now, so far uh, in this, this earnings season, earnings reporting season for the fourth quarter of last year, we've had 286 of the S&P 500 companies reporting earnings. And of those companies, 83.6% have topped analyst expectations. That's according to Refinitiv. So that's pretty dang good. And yet, I read this week that some market expert uh, suggested that people are still bearish because we're in the middle of a pandemic. Now, I don't know about, I, I, I don't think that's really a secret anymore. You know, so for... Anyone to be acting upon information that the market priced in a year ago, well, that's really a bad idea. See, because the market's what's called a discounting mechanism. It prices in what things will look like six, nine, even 12 months out. So today's news and economic reports are really old news to the market and typically largely discounted. Now, as I said, many, uh, well, all four major market indicators hit multiple new highs this week, and so did many companies. As a matter of fact, the Russell 2000, <laughs> it's outperforming rather significantly. Uh, it's up 16% this year, which is uh, somewhat more than the S&P's 4%. And so the smaller companies that make up the Russell 2000, it's their biggest show of strength in 25 years. So significant to be sure. Now, interesting, too, on the other side of the coin, our friends, the Fangs, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Microsoft, Google, all those folks. 
On Wednesday, they all were in negative territory. And what was Wednesday? Well, nothing in particular. It's just how it happened. But I think what it is is indicative of how the markets are changing in terms of uh, what they're focusing on going forward. So over these last few quarters, I think we've seen more and more intermarket relationships making a, a shift in favor of what they call risk assets, in other words, moving more into the stock type stuff. You know, and, and many are showing uh, early signs of a structural reversal and others are just simply accelerating in the direction of their underlying trend. So, and yet investors are continuing to be quick to hit quick to the trigger to get out, you know, close their positions. Stocks keep making new all-time highs. I'm not sure what everyone continues to be so scared about. Although we'll talk about that a little bit here in a while as well. Now, the market is sitting in something of a sweet spot, I believe, because it's benefiting from the profitability reported by those companies in the big tech and e-commerce who have been beneficiaries of the homebound, on-demand economy we've been suffering through this last year. And it's also getting energy from the fast case collapse and vaccine rollout. So all this on top of almost $2 trillion in accrued household savings and another fiscal package likely on the way. The question I get from folks just, you know, in conversation, how is this market possible? You know, the B word is used a lot, bubble. Uh, but here's, here's the reality. The companies are in uptrends. There's more demand for stocks than there is a supply of them. So that's supply demand, up they go. And, and that's not my opinion, that's a fact. And, and the more angry investors, some investors, are getting for not being in the market, the more frustrated I think they become with themselves and the further stocks have to run to the upside. It's just math. Now, here's an interesting, I just put this in <laughs> for reference purposes, Lyft, the ride company. They had they reported earnings uh, on Wednesday, and before the market opened, because they had reported their earnings prior to the market opening. <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the the market liked it, and the stock was up more than ten percent. Now, what happened? Well, they actually posted a loss of fifty eight cents a share. Now, why should a stock go up if they posted a loss? Well, welcome to relativity in the stock market. Because the loss was 14 cents less than what the tea leaf readers had anticipated, that was considered a good thing. Smaller than expected. Since it's smaller than expected, let's buy it. So you have to keep in mind that as you're seeing these earnings revisions, um, were they in line with expectations? In other words, you know, pretty much what the analyst had anticipated. Or were they worse or better than? And then either in those latter two, then you're going to see the stock price react accordingly. So just kind of keep that in mind when you're seeing these kinds of news data. Oh, and we had a major startup just 60 years ago this week, a little bit of an anniversary. On February 8th in 1971, after having taken 10 years to do it, the NASDAQ opened for trading. Now, NASDAQ, which is N-A-S-D-A-Q, yeah, I know that rolls off your tongue, doesn't it? It stands for the National Association of Securities Dealers Automated, Qu Automated Quotation System. And uh, we started with 2,500 securities. There's quite a few more now in that index. But the index was set with a value of 100, uh, let's see, in uh, 71. Now, they by 74, 
<laughs> a year after I started, the, the Nasdaq had fallen down to 54. That wasn't good. And then uh, from 2000 to 2003, it was down about 78% over a two-and-a-half-year stretch. However, having set a couple new highs this week, the Nasdaq uh, closed at 14095 So not including dividends, that's an annualized gain of almost 10.5% a year. See, you know, you have to stay with it no matter what. Now, remember hearing or reading that the market breadth was deteriorating? Well, here's another thing related to the NASDAQ. This week, we saw the most amount of new 52-week highs in the history of the NASDAQ. So in 60 years, this last week, we saw the most new annual highs, the most ever. Now, that seems to me to be the exact opposite of deteriorating breadth. But what do I know? And what do I know? The markets are always going to do what the markets are going to do. But I think we can be fairly uh, comfortable that uh, things are going fairly well in the marketplace. Now, I'm going to jump over for a minute into um, some economic reports. Uh, this last week, the Congressional Budget Office uh, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office came in with its expectations about the gross domestic product. They said it's expected to reach its previous peak in the middle part of this year, with the labor force forecasted to return to its uh, pre-level, pre-virus level in 2022. Um, a journal survey, Wall Street Journal survey, showed that economists, on average, expect uh, GDP to expand nearly. 4.9% this year. That's measured from the fourth quarter of last year. Uh, and that's higher than the 4.3 that they had uh, forecast in January. And more importantly, the Congressional Budget Office said that its projections do not assume any new stimulus. Now, as far as real estate, uh, the National Association of Realtors uh, released a report this past week and said that the median sales price for existing homes in each of the 180 metro areas tracked by the uh, National Association of Realtors uh, rose in the fourth quarter from a year ago. Now, that's the second consecutive quarter that every metro area tracked by those folks showed a price increase, and that's the first time this has been achieved in back-to-back -back quarters. Those of you searching for homes or in the home uh, manufacturing slash selling business are very much aware of these kinds of uh, situations, I'm sure. Now, uh, on the labor side, uh, worker filings for uh, initial unemployment claims fell last week to a level well below the early January peak. So the labor market is slowly still mending from that steep slowdown. Now, the number of uh, claims did decrease to 793, so, and also the continuing claims for benefits also declined, so that's good news. Now, employers added slightly more job posts late last year, but the hiring slipped as the labor market ended 2020 on a, shall we call it an uncertain note? That's according to the Labor Department. Total job openings increased to 6.65 million in December. That's pretty dang good. Now, the good news is not just carried in government statistics. The number of help-wanted ads has returned to pre-pandemic levels in January, particularly among those industries that weathered the pandemic relatively well. 
So that's a sign that hiring could pick up from its sluggish pace here in the first quarter of the year. Now, Mr. Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, said that continued aggressive policy support is needed to fix the myriad issues still facing workers. Addressing the issue uh, that he was making comments uh, in New York, he said addressing the issue will require, quote, a patiently accommodative monetary policy that embraces the lessons of the past, unquote. And so that's regarding the benefits that low interest rates bring to the labor market. It does appear on a non-related story that the quest for the national $15 minimum wage may have hit a snag. The aforementioned Congressional Budget Office came in with some data that showed that the proposal would boost jobless rolls by uh, 1.5 million uh, by 2025 and increase budget deficits by over 54 billion over 10 years. So uh, might want to pencil that one out a little further. Now, transfer payments, these are uh, efforts by local, state, federal governments to redistribute money. And that includes things like Social Security, welfare, unemployment, and these virus-related payments. Uh, Thanks to government edicts, which have effectively prohibited large segments of the population from working, not exactly a newsflash, the government naturally felt obligated to take care of those individuals by boosting their weekly unemployment payments and sending out one-time checks to a whole lot of folks. Now, the result was a literal explosion of government spending that has approached $3 trillion. Uh, To me, when you look at the labor force participation rate compared with that data, the transfer payments, it kind of gives you a foregone conclusion. When the government pays you more for not working, you're going to get fewer people working. And fewer people working means a smaller economy. And that goes a long way to explaining why it is that the current outlook for future economic growth growth is grim from a number of people. And so, you know, as government spending consumes a greater portion of economic output, economic growth becomes weaker. And you can take that one to the bank. And now, if I may, I'd like to uh, segue. (laughs) I'm not writing one of those little gizmos. I'm just changing topics. Um, I want to talk about inflation, inflation thoughts. Inflation is the hidden tax. It doesn't show on any statements created by anyone uh, unless you're paying close attention to what the feds say monthly about the consumer price index, it's likely that you have little or no idea what the con- uh, inflation rate is. But inflation can be defined very simply as in American in this manner. Everything costs more every year. Welcome to inflation. Now, the extent to which things cost more is driven by a lot of different factors. But... Um, Let me give you a little bigger picture. Over the last few quarters, as we talked, we've seen more and more relationships making significant shifts in favor of the risk assets. And so many are showing early signs of that structural reversal, others simply moving more rapidly in the direction of their underlying trend. From bonds and ag, along with cyclical stocks like energy, the small and mid-cap issues, materials, transports. Well, we're now seeing it show up in commodities. In January, January this year, 25 commodities 
were reported to be up in prices in prices with not one reported down. That's pretty unusual. Add in expectations for further stimulus in the months ahead and the formula for further pickup in inflation looks kind of likely. Now, the return, the yield on the 30-year Treasury pushed past 2% this week for the first time since February of, uh, let's see, last year. So the move comes amid a recent rise in the rates of longer-term treasuries compared with short-term debt. In addition, we've seen production cutbacks and increasing demand uh, helping uh, push crude prices higher. It was It's up more than 50% since the end of last October and currently trading right around the highest level since a year ago. Copper prices this last week, copper being what they call king copper because it's used uh, for construction, manufacturing, personal equipment, all kinds of different things. Anyhow, copper prices reached their highest value since February of 2013. Now, that's a long time. And finally, in terms of these kind of bits of appreciation going on, propane prices have risen more than 70% during the winter. <laughs> they say it's due to, I think this is an unfortunate cha- uh, choice of phrase, an explosion in patio heating. I don't think I'd want to be around there when you're heating that patio. And uh, big exports to Asia. So, that's going on. Now, in addition, consumer prices started this year where they left off last year. So, in the 12 months through January, in other words, January last year to January this year, the consumer price index rose just 1.4%, this after a similar gain in December. However... The movement since last May has been more pronounced. It's up at about a 3.7% annualized rate. That's the fastest pace of price gains in nearly 10 years. You see, this is this underlying big shift going on. You know, things have been one way for a long time, and now you're starting to get the uh, cyclical change happening. Excuse me. So, in other words, inflation since the early shutdown months has been running well above the Fed's inflation target of around 2%. And although consumer prices are up only 1.4%, as I just said, the year-ago comparisons are about to go much higher. Say, if, for example, for example, consumer prices rose just two-tenths of a percent per month through May, Consumer prices would then be up 3.3% from a year ago. But don't expect that to change the Fed's plan to keep short-term rates near zero for the foreseeable future. They want inflation to trend above their 2% target for a prolonged period, while the labor market, which is the other side of their mandate, they also have to heal considerably further to reach the point at which the Fed finally decides to begin seriously considering a move higher. Uh, you know, the Fed might view any near-term increase in inflation as temporary. That's especially if the job market hasn't recovered yet, and they will continue to keep their policy relatively easy. Ms. Yellen, now the Treasury Secretary, said last week that the country would get back to full employment next year if, always one of the largest words in the language, isn't it, if Congress approves the stimulus package. 
I don't know if that's a gun to their head or what. But anyhow, uh, she's talking about full employment by next year with $2 trillion in stimulus driving the likelihood of surge in inflation. Measures like industrial production and the unemployment rate show that the actual production of goods and services remains down relative to pre-virus levels. And that mismatch between supply and demand is going to eventually mean too many dollars chasing too few goods, which, um, according to Milton Friedman, is a uh, basic definition of inflation. And it's going to be further exacerbated by the additional stimulus spending that's on the way. Right now, inflation looks modest when we compare prices to where they were a year ago, but don't expect that to last. So, how long will higher inflation persist? So, if with her speaking about full employment by next year with another $2 trillion in stimulus, that's also helping drive uh, the likelihood of an increase in inflation. You know, measures like industrial production, the unemployment rate show that the actual production of goods and services remains down relative to where they were before the virus showed up. And that mismatch before supply and demand is eventually going to mean too many dollars stationing too many goods. Here's a consideration. You know, even though folks aren't driving as much as they were, gas prices have pretty much recovered to the point where they are now just about where they were a year ago. So, imagine, if you will, what gas prices could be like in the summer driving season if, after a year of being starved of travel and other kind of normal stimulation, people believe the pandemic's in retreat and additionally have cash to spare. That same dynamic could also be in play for a lot of other areas of spending, particularly in those service categories. So you have demand up strongly, supplies remain constrained, more inflation pressure. Inflation's not dead, not gone, hasn't been tamed. It's been there the whole time, just not at a very high level. And we know that it may seem like it, especially after the past few decades, which has created some sort of inflation complacency in many, many, many folks, um, uh, investors who say haven't invested before the uh, 80s, they don't know anything about inflation. So this is not something that they've ever had to factor into their trading. And again, I'm not suggesting that it's going to turn into the 70s all over again. No, 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 no. But it's just that there is a shift going that way, and you need to be aware of it. Now, when the Fed boosted the monetary base by more than $3 trillion during the QE1, 2, and 3, two things happened. One, the federal budget moved to a huge deficit, and two... Gold and silver commercials were everywhere. <laughs> you remember those jeepers, criminy. Um, we also had predictions of a collapsing dollar, and, well, the dollar's still around. But today, inflation's still missing in action. Matter of fact, since the end of the 08-09 panic, the consumer price index is up only 1.7% a year. So what's happened? Well... Boosting the monetary base isn't the same as boosting the amount of money in circulation in the economy. See, there's this thing uh, that Milton Friedman, uh, eminent, late eminent uh, economist, Nobel Prize winner, he said, watch the M2 measure of the money supply. Okay, I know everybody knows what's the M2. but it's a calculation of the money supply that includes cash, checking deposits, 
savings deposits, money markets, mutual funds, and other time deposits. They're pretty liquid, uh, and but can quickly be converted into cash or checking deposits. So, from 2008 to 2016, the Fed bought trillions of dollars of bonds, but it also increased bank, increased bank regulation in their capital requirements. So, banks ended up holding all kinds of excess reserves, so the money supply remained calm. All that money didn't go into the system, as a number of people were concerned that it would. So the M2 has been growing about 6% a year. Now, that's similar to the growth rate in the 90s. During the uh, virus-induced round of Fed money printing, instead of using QE to put reserves into the banking system, the Fed financed government programs to fund loans to businesses and direct payments to us. As a result, M2 is up 26.3%. That's the fastest annual growth we can find anywhere in U.S. history and double the pace of the M2 growth uh, that we experienced in the 70s. There's a thing called modern monetary theory, which on one hand isn't modern, and, well, it's just kind of vaguely a theory, but, <clears throat> excuse me, it says that the U.S. can increase real output enough to absorb it. In other words, they say that while inflation is, again, too much money chasing too few goods, these monetary... But anyhow, modern monetary theory folks expect the output of goods to go up enough to keep inflation low. I think that's going to be a bit of a tough trade because um, inflation's already on the rise. Now, over the past six months, the CPI, Consumer Price Index, which measures inflation at our level, is up 3.6% annually. And again, if it if it goes up only again another 2 two-tenths of a percent between now and May, it'll be up 3.4% over 12 months. Now, in addition to the M2 growth, we've also seen significant increase in incomes and savings, but production is not up. Demand continues to exceed supply, as we've certainly seen in the real estate markets. And unfortunately, in spite of a strong recovery in output, industrial production still is below pre-virus levels, and uh, demand is okay. It's the supply that's hurting. A perfect recipe for inflation. And remember I was saying we have all this money? Total after-tax income in the country was up 7.2% last year, the most for any year since 2000. So last year combined, Americans saved about 2.2, 2 me, trillion in and more than doubling the previous record high. And as of the third quarter last year, the amount that folks had in checking accounts, savings accounts, time deposits, money market funds, was higher by $2.8 trillion from the year before. Now, that's an additional $2.8 trillion. It's not just $2.8 trillion. That's another $2.8 trillion that was added to it. Add another $1.9 billion in federal government stimulus spending, borrowing from the future to spend today, and the U.S. is swimming in cash. Much of it is funded by Washington's money printing. And we can see this affecting the markets. The 10-year Treasury yield has risen from six-tenths of a percent in May last year to 1.2% today. That's a double. That's a lot. And the gap between the rates of the normal 10-year Treasury and the what they call TIPS, which is the inflation-protected uh, Treasury note, 
suggests that uh, the market is expecting 2.2% increase in inflation over the next 10 years, and those numbers are going up. So, uh, going back, inflation expectations are rising. Now, now, there are concerns that the combination of the economy reopening and all this money and stimulus in the pipeline could cause an overshoot, which would lead to higher long-term bond yields and higher interest rates in general. That becomes a headwind to stock markets. Yes, it does. But what I think all this money printing threatens to eventually, eventually, operative term, create a sugar high in stocks. We aren't there yet. No, no. But markets are definitely floating on a sea of new money. Inflation hedges such as energy, real estate, commodities, materials companies will do very well. Traditional fixed income is still at a big risk because as rates go up, those prices tend to drop. The rate of inflation, excuse me, return of inflation because of misguided policy choices, I think, is a very real threat to the long-term health of the U.S. economy. So, to summarize, inflation is coming back. You don't have to worry about it uh, being double-digit any in the immediate future, no. But you do have to factor it in because, again, it's the, the hidden tax. You have to factor in the inflation rate going back to, well, a long time, 80 years, I think, in the U.S. has averaged about 3%. Um, and again, recently, it's only like one4 But use 3% because that's the average over a long period. So that means that if you're earning, and I use that term advisedly, uh, one, well, hey, let's use the U.S. Treasury. If you're earning 1.2% on the U.S. Treasury and inflation is 3%, well, then you're, if you will, upside down by 1.8% in terms of appreciation. You will lose buying power, guaranteed. It's just math, folks. I'm not trying to say they're bad things. It's just you got to be aware of what you're doing when you put your money to work. Now, in terms of the outlook, let's see what the tea leaf readers have to say here. Well, the folks at Morgan Stanley say a raging rally is starting. That's their word. And Goldman Sachs is calling for a 16% gain in the S&P this year. Morgan says that the economy is going to continue on a strong upward trend. Both of the banks say that the underlying economy has a lot of upside, so markets are going to have a nice economic and earnings tailwinds behind them. Mike Wilson, who is chief U.S. equity strategist at Morgan Stanley, um, had this to offer. He said, we're still very much in a bull market at the early stages of an economic recovery that's gaining momentum. We continue to recommend stocks with the most upside to an improving economic backdrop as the vaccines are distributed and normal activities resume. He goes on to say the market is set to see a substantial acceleration in earnings growth on better-than-expected operating leverage. Now, what is that? That's a term that measures how a company can increase profit by decreasing costs and increasing revenues. So, you know, over this last year, there's been a lot of cost-cutting going on. And so these strategists um, are expecting that the cost-cutting efforts that have taken place, whether by choice or not, um, last year, re well, and into this year, reducing rent, travels down, eliminating jobs, 
entertainment obviously out the window, dramatically going to increase their bottom lines and accelerate profits even more when revenues are expected to start increasing later this year. It's very simple. More revenues plus lower expenses, more profit. Stocks move on two things. Their interest rate, whatever the prevailing interest rates are, and what the earnings are for that particular company. So with interest rates remaining low and earnings continue to rise, as we said, 80-some-odd percent have beat earnings estimates for just this last quarter. To me, that says that's a pretty solid outlook for the markets in general. That does not take away fluctuation day-to-day. No, no, no. But the, the trend has not been, how would I say, interrupted. The folks at Bank America have told us that investors poured a record amount into stock funds, especially tech stock funds. So as a result, those Bank America people, who I presume are Merrill Lynch in reality, uh, are warning that exuberance may come before a fall. They have a bull and bear indicator, which is their own gauge of market sentiment, and they say it's approaching levels of extreme bullishness, which they say can trigger a sell signal for them. And uh, they said, too, that a market correction could be on the horizon as the rally has shown signs of overheating, but it'll be a buying opportunity for stock investors, they believe. And Jared Woodward, good old Jared, he's at uh, Bank America, he added this, we expect a viable 5 to 10% correction in this quarter as the big unknowns co- coincide with exuberant positioning, record equity supply, and as good as it gets earnings revisions. So, moving on, uh, you know, I think uh, all this money printing, as I said, can eventually create a sugar high in stocks. It's not anywhere close. But investors need to remain patient and stay with quality. You know, there's been a lot of play in these low-quality stocks. If you look at GameStop, symbol GME, uh, I mean, that thing has been all over the board simply because these kids have been trading it up and down um, in their Robin Hood and whatever accounts. And that's swell, but they don't make any money. And if you're going to do investing, I'm not talking about the traders, I'm talking about the company. And if you're going to be doing long-term investing, flyby nights are not the way to do it. Stay with quality. It's not exciting, but it does real well in the long run. Now, I'm seeing these stocks making new all-time highs, but the questions I keep getting is, how is it possible? Well, they're in uptrends. There's more demand for stocks than there's a supply of them. That's not my opinion. That's a fact. You know, stocks breaking out to new highs in many cases are just beginning new bull markets, and folks still don't want to believe it. (laughs) I mean, this hasn't changed since 2009. If you study market history, this is how bull markets start. We've seen it before. We're going to see it again. And as I said earlier, we've seen the most amount of new 52-week highs in the history of the NASDAQ, the most ever in 60 years. Something's going on here, okay? Isn't that the exact opposite of deteriorating breadth? You know, we've pulled a lot lot of optimism forward. That is a true thing. And the market's trying to figure out where we go from here. The fiscal and monetary side of the equation seems to be priced in the market. 
going forward, I think we need to see broader economic recovery, certainly a broader reopening. <laughs> these politicians getting their feet put in the fire all of a sudden. Gee, it's magic as if all these things are going to be open. Gee, I wonder how that happened. So you've got three elements of capital accumulation that you have to consider. Time, the money you put to work, and your return. You've got to consider all of those in terms of what you're doing. You, uh, uh, Jason Zweig had a comment, um, which I thought was pretty good. Uh, he's a, uh, he writes for the Wall Street Journal. He said, the new messiahs of momentum with their huge followings on social media can unite the buying power of scattered investors better than anyone who came before them. For a crowd of followers to be wise rather than foolish, though, those who lead it must have highly unusual information edge. And he added, I'm not sure why the predictions of today's powerful outsiders should be any more accurate than those who came before them. Fame and fortune in other fields are definitely no assurance of success in the financial markets, unquote. Certainly applies to certain basketball uh, team owners that I know. So... Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. I hope you have a good one. And, of course, later on tonight, go Zagmos. If you haven't read that story in the Sports Illustrated, I strongly recommend it. It's a great, great, great uh, testimony to the team and the school. So thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week at 9 Pacific. This is Mike Mail. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. Thank you very much for listening to Money Management. Opinions, forecasts, and case studies are for illustrative purposes only and may only be relevant at the time of recording. Certain sectors in the market, such as international and emerging markets, certain fixed income, including high-yield bonds, precious metals, mid- and small company securities, have greater risks that are generally outlined in their prospectus, contract, or offering document. Any guarantees or protections offered through insurance products are subject to the claims-paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Diversification, asset allocation are no guarantees or protections against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, and there is always risk associated with investment.